0: I'm AJ Bianco from Podcast PD, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows in the network are individually owned and opinions
1: expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that we'll be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, So take a look. Go to my website, stevamoletto.com, slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Asha Kleckowitz and Ryan York. They're the co CEOs of The Gathering Place, an awesome new school in San Antonio, Texas that has a focus on project based learning, the arts, and serving underserved neighborhoods. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stevenmalettocom reviews, and uh, left a review. Could you do that? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boon Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser-cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K number 12 and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring and I know that you will love yours. <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now, here's Steve with this week's show. The Gathering Place is the first and only restorative campus founded and based in San Antonio, Texas. Conceptualized by co-founders Asha Klekowitz and Ryan York, The Gathering Place's education model is rooted in social justice and project-based learning and was inspired by Klikowitz and York's beliefs that kids, especially in historically underserved neighborhoods, don't get a complete education. The pair spent 10 years teaching, leading, and seeing glimmers of what could be when teachers are trusted, kids are loved for who they are, and administrators don't measure students by test scores. The gathering place opened in 2020 and currently serves kindergarten to third grade, with plans to add a new grade level annually through the 12th grade. Asha Klekowitz joined the movement for educational equity after witnessing the injustice of the school-to-prison pipeline while tutoring inmates in Boston. She joined Teach for America Memphis and led her students to achieve 2.5 years of growth, ranking in the highest percentiles across the state. She transitioned to developing high school math teachers across Chicago, where she was the only coach in her organization to be recognized for excellence by every teacher in her cohort. She later ventured into the financial sector, where she worked as an investment consultant managing a $536 million book and became the fastest promoted employee in the region. Ryan York's career started by co-founding a nonprofit that served hundreds of children each year through its flagship program, Southern Girls Rock and Roll Camp, and opening a 6,000-square-foot after-school arts facility outside of Nashville. Transitioning into the classroom, he was awarded the District All-Star Teacher Award and developed a blended learning software management platform that led to the highest math growth in the district by enrolled teachers. As principal, Ryan led a school turnaround that ended with the highest staff retention math scores and fifth-grade reading growth in one of the top-performing school systems in Tennessee. Ryan and Asha began working together when they teamed up with Republic Schools to create a middle and high school computer science curriculum and teacher training program. After six months, Ryan was promoted to CIO and won the National Sally Ride and Deloitte Award for Innovation. Today, we're focused on learning about The Gathering Place, Asha and Ryan, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone.
2: Hello, and thank you for having us. We're very excited to be here.
1: Well, it's great to here, likewise. Very cool. Glad to have you guys here, and uh, we, got to, we got to start by talking about this. What do you like most about working with kids?
2: <laughs> uh, the best thing about kids is actually how honest they are. They will ask any question that they have in any way that it exists in their mind. Uh, and so it is raw, it is honest, it is funny. Uh, they haven't yet learned all those social conditioning things, and that's a good thing. Um, and so they they will just ask exactly what's on their mind or share their thoughts exactly as they are, and it's it's just beautiful.
0: I also think we, when we think about education and we think about kids, we sort of think about uh, the things that kids learn how to do and the skills that kids develop. Uh, but, I, but I actually think that, that children are, are born with and start with just this absolutely limitless and boundless creativity. And actually a lot of getting older is like actually losing that. And so there, there's a beautiful part of what does it look like to, to run and lead a school uh, that actually sustains the brilliant curiosity and creativity that kids come to us with and help create systems that, that don't take that away over the course of their time in education.
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you guys talking about that because that's something that uh, you, you, you don't take this on if you don't have a some sort of interest in working with kids. Otherwise, uh, it, it's kind of a messed up look on the world because the kids can be just as Yeah, you know, They got all the challenges they're dealing with, so they need you to really like working with them. So I, I appreciate you guys sharing your stories there. That's cool. The, uh, you know. I got to ask, do you remember the original inspiration for The Gathering Place? I mean, what, what was that thing that hit your brain and said, we've got to do something here, we've got to make this happen?
2: <laughs> yeah, there were, there were definitely a couple of moments. Uh, one of the big ones is we were visiting a classroom in Los Angeles. And it was spectacular. It was a high school classroom. We walked in. We couldn't even like see the teacher because the teacher just blended in. And the entire focus was on the students. Uh, And each group was working on taking an idea that they had and building it into reality. And, and, you know, that sounds cool. And so you're like, Oh, what a cool project and how wonderful. And like, you're thinking about things about the future and problem solving and critical thinking. And then we went up and we started talking to each of the groups. And one of the, one of the, the statements that were one of the reactions that one of us had was, Wow, how cool. Like, how cool would it actually be to like prototype this idea? And the group stopped us and was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa we already are. <laughs> like this is we we've received a ten thousand dollar grant. Our idea is off with the manufacturer. We are already prototyping it live. And this was a classroom of like seventeen year olds uh, in a school that had historically like within that entire neighborhood had struggled um and here we had just the brilliance of students like fully celebrated uh, and where kids were literally transforming their community and their world around them. And it wasn't hypothetical. It wasn't PowerPoints. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't a presentation with index cards. They were actually doing it live at 17 with things that like most adults dream of doing one day and then most never do. Uh, And so we saw that and then we were already coming with, uh, just like different things we were hearing from, from folks that with the schools we were working with, uh, where school did not represent their community. School did not represent what they wanted to do. School did not represent their lives. What was happening in school was so disconnected from reality. And it was just this like hypothetical play with ideas versus actually doing the work. Um, and we had to take a step back. Ryan and I had built a project-based learning program. Uh, for middle schools and high schools where kids were weaving in technology to actually solve problems within their community and then prototyping it. And then we would hear from kids that they loved this, but then they would have to go back to regular school. They would then like leave this class. And we were like, what does regular school mean? And they're like back to the classes where we're told what to do, how to be, where to learn. We're not allowed to do anything. Uh, And so we were like coming to Los Angeles with all of those narratives in our head then we saw this classroom and we went wait a minute what if all of school looked like this what if schools were actually built to represent the voices of kids what if schools were actually built where the work you did mattered and it wasn't like if you think about a lot of the teacher lines and we said it you know i was a math teacher ryan was a math teacher um at the start of our careers in education of like we have to get through the boring stuff to get to the cool stuff or like oh when will i need this in life you won't we just need to do this like Those answers should not belong in education and unfortunately make up a lot of the foundations within education. And so once we strung all of those pieces together, uh, it then became a journey of like, let's go open that school. Let's go open a school where this is the reality of education that kids are working on every day, which is their life, real solutions, real work, uh, where their learning matters, not for a test, not for a worksheet, not for a grade, but it actually matters in the world that we live in.
1: Excellent. Well, this is, this is really cool. And it, you know, one of the things is that, uh, you know, what you're doing is is, uh, based out of San Antonio. So we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but uh, you know, you guys were in Boston or, I mean, I've got, I've got different cities that are all on the East coast. I got, I got, I heard Boston, Chicago, I heard Nashville. I mean, we got, we got a lot of stuff going on over there and, and you went out to LA and you looked at LA and, and then you ended up in a real cool town called San Antonio, Texas. And uh, how'd you end up in San Antonio? What? Why, why was that the place that was the place to be?
2: Yeah, so San Antonio. Uh, Ryan and I had originally been working in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and the work we were doing there... We realized from from how I'd shared earlier that we had reached the stage of wanting to open a new school. We really wanted to see education built piece by piece by piece in a very different way than anything that we had seen before. Uh, And the way that Nashville was gentrifying, we knew that we would not be able to open in Nashville. The amount of kids across the city was decreasing as families were getting pushed out and outside of city limits. And so then it became a question of where, where were we going to open a school? And we wanted to be really thoughtful, really intentional about it. Uh, And so Ryan and I actually ended up doing is we ended up quitting our jobs. Uh, we pulled our savings and then we split up across the country. <laughs> so I went out to D.C. to help open a new school to kind of just see the insides of what does it take to actually open a school. And then Ryan went out to the Bay Area uh, where he worked with principals in a school system to, to go through kind of like a, a revisioning process. Um, and then every single month we were meeting in different places and just getting on the ground and talking to folks. We wanted to know where are the needs in our nation? where are their desires, hopes, aspirations within communities that are not yet being met uh, because what folks are looking for is a type of model, a type of education that just simply hasn't been seen yet Um, and that could be something that then we could match and provide and work hand in hand with the community to then provide and create Uh, and so every single month we were traveling to different places Uh, we were again we're talking to like anyone we could find (laughs) so people on the street grocery stores uh, local nonprofits, community leaders etc and when we got to San Antonio we just fell in love with the city Um, and a lot of what we were hearing from folks here in our community now in San Antonio was that the arts were such an integral part of culture. It was a way of passing on history. It was a way of passing on culture. And the arts were almost entirely eliminated from schools. Uh, and that was one of our like core components within a vision of what we were hoping that schools would have within it is that the arts are needed to express and to express who you are and to, to toggle with your identity and to share your messages with the world. Um, and then the, the second And piece was that we were also hearing a need and a desire for like hands on learning. Texas is a relatively traditional state, highly traditional education system. So it's very standardized, very driven to the state test. uh, And that doesn't leave a ton of space for creative hands on learning. And so as we were hearing this from different stories from different parents, grandparents, kids, students here in San Antonio. That's when we realized that a lot of what the hopes and the desires were here. I uh, was also something that then we could partner with and and help build into reality, and so that's how we ended up in San Antonio.
1: That's very cool. I just think it's it's a neat neat how you. I mean, it's it's hopefully you guys like did I don't know video logs or something took took lots of here we are in uh, outside of this town, and here we are now, and. Uh, because that, that's what a cool thing. I mean, you got a book right there, I think.
0: <laughs> It'll come. Get us through COVID. It'll come. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, you know, project-based learning is a major aspect of your curriculum. Could you talk about its role in, in the students' lessons?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so project-based learning um, is just predicated on this belief that what children do, what their thoughts are, the work they do matters, and it should matter. So there is no busy work within project-based learning. There is there you don't see your worksheets, your textbooks, uh, and this like one size fits all. Uh, the like origin within project-based learning is that kids' interests, kids' passions, then become the catalyst for a project that kids then deeply explore. Uh, and then that is how you intersect all the different content areas into it. You weave in your math, your science, your social studies, your history, you weave in storytelling, you grapple with equity questions, because uh, all of it is rooted in, in a problem or in a question that kids already have so much of education is about like hypothetically coming up with problems. I think about what all of like math word problems sound like. <laughs> um, and the reality is there, there will very rarely be a time when you have 14 cantaloupes and another 12 cantaloupes, unless you happen to be a cantaloupe farmer. <laughs> but like those are the math problems that we're diving into in school. Um and so that is what we shy away from. And so to your question, uh, each teacher works with their kiddos, observes kiddos, talks to kiddos, works with our classroom community to really identify what are those underlying passions? What are those underlying questions? What are those underlying problems that kids are identifying going, hey, this is a problem within our campus. Hey, this is a problem within our classroom community. And that ends up sprouting like an essential question that is then deeply explored uh, where kids go through a process of identifying questions, doing empathy interviews, doing research, beginning to investigate that question deeply. It's how you become that interdisciplinary exploration piece um, to then proposing possible solutions uh, to then actually prototyping those solutions to so then building something into reality. And that might be, um, one of our classes last school year built a gutter system these are kindergartners. they built a gutter system for their school building <laughs> uh, another classroom built um like a like an emotional safe center so it was like a 3d place where if you were feeling really big emotions you could go inside of and, and process them using different tools um, another classroom built a pollinator garden uh, how to attract more bees and pollinators to our campus. Uh, and so these are the different types of things that our kids are actually working on. Uh, and so that is how they deeply learn. That is how they cover so many different pieces, but not in this like hypothetical, standalone, sterile uh, textbook or problems, but they're actually learning those same exact skills by tackling real issues, real questions, real passions uh, that then. Give birth to that project.
0: It's also important to note that uh, project-based learning has been the method of instruction for most of human history. If you if you go back like hundreds of thousands of years of like human development, the way that we have raised and educated kids is by engaging them in authentic work. It is like an extremely recent phenomenon in human history that we think that education should look how it currently does, right? You've got Frederick the Great in Prussia who decides, gosh, I need to better control these different villages that I've rounded up and tried to organize. And they're not much for being a part of the military. They'd much rather stay a part of the the local farming villages that they've grown up in. So I I need a way to indoctrinate them so that I can control them to build up a stronger military to fight off Austria. Uh, And he was like, I have a great idea. We'll take kids and put them in a room all day, every day, channeling a message of like uniformity and compliance. So we can then raise them to be good soldiers. Uh, And shortly after that process begins, the United States is reveling in its recent win against great Britain and saying, gosh, how do we get these different colonies to come together and, uh, George Washington, who fought with Frederick the Great, says, hey, I, I know this guy that did this really cool thing where you can like get people really young and put them all in a room and, and basically control how they are raised and how they think. This would this would really help us build up a sense of citizenship across this newly formed country. Uh, and so we like borrow their educational model uh, to more efficiently indoctrinate kids uh, by having standardized curricula that we teach and raise about our nation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's the system that we're operating inside of. And it's very counterintuitive to hundreds of thousands of years of what it looks like to, to raise kids. Uh, and so, you know, we are, we are also going back to, uh, you know, people will sometimes say, like, oh, project-based learning is so innovative. It's like, no, this is actually how we raise kids for most of human history. Uh, and we are simply returning back to a common sense approach to engage kids in thoughtful and meaningful work, and they will learn more from it and be able to apply it more meaningfully in their lives.
1: You know, one of the things that is also when you, know, you can't help but notice it when you go to your website is that the Gathering Place's website is that, uh, you know, the arts, you've mentioned this, the arts play a major role in the experience the kids have at the Gathering Place. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Uh so for our arts, like we really believe that the arts are one of the oldest forms of communications is humanity. We uh, express who we are, we pass on our stories, we explore different provocative questions, we like are in a communication and exploration with the audience if there is an audience for an art piece Uh, and so to us just the arts are such an integral part of humanity Uh, and so at tgp our kids have art every single day and it is not something that may be taken away Uh, there's no point in the school year where the arts stop like it does in many schools because now it becomes test prep Uh, the arts are just a protected time for kiddos to really get to explore all the beautiful power of the arts Uh, and At our school, uh, for the elementary school, which is the phase that we're in right now, we really base it off of exploring different arts. So much of art in elementary school is exposure, just being exposed to different types of art. And when you think about society, a lot of access to arts is actually driven by wealth and class wealth. And we think that that. Uh, is like not what society should look like. Like everybody should have access to the arts. Everyone should be able to participate, to learn, to feel it, to try it uh, because of how integral it is to our humanity. And so the vision for our elementary school and every single year we're building towards it step by step by step as we add a grade each year is in kindergarten, our kiddos have kindergarten immersion arts because so much of kindergarten is actually exploration of different mediums and materials Uh, and then once you start hitting first second third fourth grade you actually transition and explore four different types of arts. so you do theater you do music you do dance and you do visual arts and that gives you an opportunity to really feel out different types of arts. And then our, our vision for art in middle school is to actually begin to specialize uh, and to begin to explore one or two passion areas of art a little bit deeper. And then by high school to really get to go in deeply uh, and to then like fully specialize in a specific type of art. Uh, and you're do you're specializing in this specific type of art because that's the art that calls out to your heart. Uh, and so, elementary, which is where we're at right now, again is for exposure.
1: Very cool, very cool. And uh, you know, to the audience, you can't you can't see this, but uh, Ryan, is that a cello you have behind you, or a or a bass? One
0: size up. I play bass.
1: A bass. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> very cool. You, I, I played trumpet starting in the fourth grade, and uh, oh, nice. And did it through high school and uh, college, and. Uh, Loved it, and and never re- realized how much it would become a great tool for me when I became an administrator because I used it to help connect with kids, and I'd go play yeah. in the band and stuff like that. And uh, um, and I've had to help rebuild programs, which is um, something near and dear to my heart. So that's that's I kind of I love that aspect that showed what you're trying to encourage. That especially going into an area where they've lost lots of the funding for for those programs. Good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I got to ask you is uh, um, I was reading a manifesto and in there you got into something that is really interesting, which is about grades. Just so, one thing. Just one thing. right? Here. Oh, no, there's lots interesting in there. Matter of fact, a lot of my questions came from there and some of them got eliminated because I'm like, I got to talk about some other stuff, too. But um, you got to talk about grades. Uh, it, what are your thoughts about grading?
0: Well, we don't do it, so that's a good starting place. Um, and it, it, it's important to to couple that with what we do do, which is narratives. Um, I think it's, you know, very important to document and share student learning and progress. However, grades are an absolutely unhelpful and abstract representation of any meaningful form of learning taking any child in the United States and saying they have a B tells you absolutely nothing. Um, of course that you know, it, it's not any sort of like standardized mechanism. So it's completely at someone's discretion and generally a child with like an A or a B oftentimes in most grading systems translate into like, didn't give the teacher too hard of a time, uh, and a grade that's lower than that means did. And that's completely unhelpful and unfair and, and, Marred with the biases of the people that that you know design the scores that the child receives, and so uh, we instead, twice a year, compose ten to fifteen page narratives per child that goes through their social emotional development, their growth in literacy as readers and writers, their growth in numeracy, their work through their projects, and and any other goals the child may be working on, including the work that they are doing in art, the work that they are doing in our cooking and gardening class, the work they are doing in our yoga class. Um, And we provide meaningful narratives and qualitative uh, data on their progress. And that's documented with photographs and video and anecdotes uh, that actually give the caregiver and ultimately the child a lot more meaningful of a snapshot of where they're at, as well as what goals they're working towards. Um, we we were talking with a funder once because this one really throws funders off. We were talking with a funder once that was like, you know, asking us about our grades, and and uh, you know, they were like very confused by the fact we don't do grades, and they said, well, how do you know if kids are learning? And we said through our narratives. Like this is actually like. Really thoughtful documentation of each child's progress, and they said, "Yeah, but I don't have time to read that." And we're like, "Okay, but then you don't have time to know how our kids are doing." Like a summarizing that you know we have thirty percent of kids with an A tells you absolutely nothing. It's a, it's a useless mechanism of trying to evaluate kids, uh, and. One of our favorite exercises that we used to to do when we were holding a lot of in-person town halls with caregivers is we were, you know, educating them about the gathering place and getting people to, to learn more about our approach is we would open all of our sessions, and this could be eight people at a, a you know, coffee shop or 50 people at a, an assembly. We would always open by just saying, like, what, what are you hopeful for for your child during their time at education? And, and what matters most to you, uh, you know, when, when you think about what you, your hopes are for your own child uh, as they progress through school? Um, and you would get these beautiful answers. You would get these answers about compassion and, and empathy and perspective taking and curiosity and creativity and being able to think critically and solve problems and find things to become passionate about. And you'd get this beautiful list and then we would point out none of those things can quantitatively be measured. And yet, the only mechanism we use to evaluate the quality of kids, teachers, and schools is like one standardized test score. And never in one single session did anyone ever say, "Good test scores." Like it was, it was never on the list of things. Um, And and the reality is that just doesn't it doesn't oftentimes make people very comfortable. It's true; is most of the things that matter most about our humanity simply can't be summarized by a percentile. Um, and we need to stop thinking about our evaluation mechanisms as, as quantitative mechanisms when we are raising humans, which is a very qualitative process.
1: Right now, there are a lot of uh, people going what that happened to be <laughs> 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 and I, and I say that in a, in a funny way because what you're talking about is awesome because you know in in schools that already exist, one of the struggles is that when you come in and say, I want to change the grading system. They say things like what you said, it's beautiful. It's, uh, we, you know, I, I want you to measure how they learn and the idea this, that, and the other, but uh, I want to know where they're ranked in class. All right, so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're the third most compassionate child in the classroom.
1: <laughs> yes, there you go, there you go. Nice, nice, I like that. So good stuff, I appreciate you talking with me about that because when I saw that in there, I'm like, I got to make sure I mention this because that's uh, that's one that uh, if you ever want to really disrupt the the force around an established uh, um, group. All you got to do is go in there and say, I have an idea that will do away with grades.
0: (laughs) Yeah, interestingly enough, in Texas history, there was actually a period of time in the early 90s where the state was actually exploring doing away, uh, or technically not like migrating towards the movement of standardized testing. Texas, for better or for worse, likes to do things differently than the rest of the country. Uh, Oftentimes, and certainly in modern times, that's much to the detriment of most of humanity. However, at certain periods of time, uh, there's actually like glimmers of hope in that. And when the, the entire movement after the whole nation at risk report that came out and scared everybody into thinking we need to do standardized testing. Uh, that Texas was sort of rebelling against the standardized testing movement and was very close to passing an agreement that instead of standardized testing, students would be required to keep portfolios of student work. And it was this beautiful measure uh, that then got filibustered. I don't know. The the legislature decided against it and instead decided to move towards standardized tests. But we we were actually, more than most states, very close to actually being uh, ahead of the curve, which is not typically a, a stigma that Texas carries with it
1: very cool this is you know it's a you know, it's an exciting thing in those early 90s there were there are a lot of uh, um, focuses on trying to figure out how to really get to the first of all the the child as a learner the, the child you know the teacher as facilitator and uh, you know and the, this idea that uh, um, do we really need these grades and is there a way of measuring um, progress as opposed to using grades and And that's, that's cool. That's, uh, um, and I remember those days. (laughs) Good stuff. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I got to, um, ask you here is you have, you have a board and the board uh, exists for a reason. So tell me, tell us a little bit about your board.
0: Yeah, we have a fantastic board. Um, It is a board that operates differently than most nonprofit boards. A lot of nonprofit boards are in place to raise money. It's sort of the the thing you get people that, uh, you know, oftentimes are at a point in their career where they are either retired or, or, you know, heading in that direction. And they want to use their success and connections and, and, you know. Uh, you know, work up to the state to be able to contribute in ways to organizations that align with their beliefs. And that's fantastic and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, we instead chose to focus our board around individuals who ideologically um are gonna be really passionate about what we're doing. Cause to your point about disrupting people by introducing no grades, there's like 18 things that you can point to that we do that really disrupt. Uh, you know, the, the the mean approach to to education and, and the status quo, so to speak. So um, there, there will obviously be different points in times where the way we do things is very disruptive towards, uh, you know, different establishments and different systems that, you know, benefit from operating the way the current system does. Um, and in those moments, you want a board that actually gets why we're doing the things that we're doing. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to, you know, uh, be excited about something new. It's another thing to ideologically actually deeply believe in, uh, you know, the beliefs that are driving the decisions that we make. And it's important for us to have a board like that. So we have a phenomenal board made up of artists, made up of advocates, made up of educators um, that truly, you know, understand the intent behind our work. Um, as well as a board that is is very local here in San Antonio and that play really important roles throughout our community uh, and reflect and represent our community in a way that uh, a lot of times you don't see in most boards. And if you compare our board to the boards of, of many of the other charter schools and nonprofits here, that's a, a notable difference.
1: Very nice. That's you know, that's part of the reason why I asked the question is that uh, it, it's it's cool to have a have that functioning board that understands and your b- beliefs and drive. That's cool, very cool. Yeah. One of the things that I gotta ask you is where do your teachers come from? I mean, what's a, ma- and if we could use that to kind of go into what's a major expectation, they have to know this in order to even think about coming to work at The Gathering Place.
2: Yeah, so our teachers are primarily local. I'd probably say about 95% of our teachers, including our talent pipeline, are here from within our community, Uh, and then we have about 5% of folks that were already moving to San Antonio, and they're looking for for jobs, and then they they stumble across the gathering place, and it's a beautiful fit. Uh, To your question about, to the second question you had asked, um, for folks to, to even like engage in the process of possibly working at the gathering place there are three things that must be true. Uh, The first one is you need to be willing and ready to do anti-bias work. So much of our school and what we haven't touched base on yet is that we are rooted on equity and rooted on doing anti-bias work every single day. And that shows up in how we carry ourselves as adults, the conversations we engage in with kids, the intersection of our projects into equity work, into critical consciousness work. Um, and, and I'm going to say this very directly, like most educators aren't ready to actually do deep internal work around the biases they hold. Our school systems across the country right now uphold systems that are highly uh, biased, that are highly prejudiced, that are highly inequitable. Uh, And when you are part of a system that does that you are actually every single day upholding and maintaining those systems, you maintain it through punitive discipline structures in your classroom, you maintain it by running a classroom that is heavily compliance based. You maintain it by having a highly exclusionary classroom, kiddos with higher behavior needs, kiddos in special education, children that are for whom English is their second, third, or fourth language and like what beauty there, but that's seen as a deficit in many schools. Um, And it's these types of practices where you're constantly maintaining upholding systems and folks will say, Oh, I want to see education look different. Uh, Oh, I'm ready for that journey, but they don't recognize that that work actually begins with a critical look from ourselves at ourselves and doing that equity work and that anti-bias work every single day. So that's one of the things that has to be true is like you need to be on your path of doing like anti-bias work and interrogating your own conditioning, interrogating your own biases that you hold and every single person holds them, including me and Ryan. And we're constantly doing this work every single day. Um, And so that that's something that you have to be ready for at the gathering place. Uh, The second one is that you need to be uh, ready and excited to completely unlearn the systems, the mechanisms of teaching that you have been trained in. Whether you are a traditionally trained teacher where you've gotten your degree in it, you've done your student teaching, et cetera, et cetera, whether you're a highly experienced veteran teacher, you've got 20, 30 years under your belt, whether you're an alternatively certified teacher who is coming in from a different industry, uh, you will have to go through heavy unlearning processes because most of what we think of in education, this was also again true for Ryan and myself, this is how we were trained as teachers. These are the first classrooms we had in education and they were highly traditional And You cannot go from a traditional model to a non-traditional model without engaging in an unlearning process. An unlearning process is exciting, but it's also exhausting. An unlearning process is full of hope and it comes with heavy feelings of, oh my gosh, the ways I used to teach my kids, I now see the impact I was truly having on them and I need to sit with that because that impact wasn't always good or pleasant or pretty um you uh, this type of work is full of potential it's full of what could the world look like um and you have to be ready to own the fact that your instincts the skills you've honed in a lot of traditional schools They were, again, meant to uphold systems that like we do not believe in at the gathering place, which means you're going to have to be ready to feel like a first year teacher again. And that's a second piece, because, again, that's that's an emotional journey. That is a um, skill journey that you're going to have to go on. That's a cognitive journey. Um, And so those pieces there. Uh, and then the, the final piece about being true for like the gathering place and like what does it take? What would it look like? Uh, is you have to be ready for a startup journey. Startups are very different. Like we are a startup. This is our second year of operation. Uh, and that means that a lot of the systems you're used to now, this is no longer a conversation about like traditional or non traditional. In a startup space, everything is getting built from the ground up. When you're in an existing large district, when you're in an existing small rural district, when you're in an existing charter network, a lot of systems have already been built. Who do I go to if I have this question? Uh, What's the protocol that we follow when X, Y, Z happens? Oh, I had Z happen. That's super rare. What's the extra protocol that we follow in that situation? Every single one of those pieces is being built. And so for folks that um, are used to operating within a system within which there's an answer to everything. They now need to get comfortable operating in a system when everything is getting built. Or it gets built, we iterate it, we prototype it, we don't like it, and so now we're rebuilding it. We try it again, it goes, 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 we still don't like it. So, all right, next iteration. Uh, And that is a very different, like startup life is just very different than when you are in an organization that is simply maintaining versus an organization that is building. And so that's the third thing you need to be ready for and excited by. Because some people hear that and go like, nope, mm -mm, terrifying, I don't want that. Uh, and so the folks that are here are the folks that are excited by the potential of what it means to be at a startup when everything is under discussion, when there is no uh, like, oh, but we've done it like this historically and therefore it must continue because I said so. Like, that just that doesn't exist because everything is getting built.
1: That is awesome. As a principal, I used to always love hiring brand new teachers who have this something that you just talked about, which is really this, this, this desire to want to learn how to do and to do and to work and see and make happen, make magic happen. And that's that's awesome, I hear that passion, good stuff. You know, it's one of the things that uh, I, I, I got to ask you this because you kind of touched on this I think a little bit is, you know, you, you opened in 2020, right? By the way, interesting year to start. <laughs> But <laughs>
2: <laughs> the curveball we didn't see coming. The yes, <laughs> that's a
1: little stressful thing to start off with. But uh, you know, you you, you opened in twenty twenty. What what's a major lesson that you've learned in the process of getting the gathering place up and running?
2: <laughs> I'll show you
0: where to each writer's down and then, like show and see if we wrote down the same thing.
1: <laughs> that's funny.
2: Yes, 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 yes. You can kick us off.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's so many. So um, many. I, although actually I'm, I'm going to preface the answer by saying it actually has been a very intentional and difficult process to disaggregate what lessons learned are a byproduct of opening a school in a pandemic versus which are lessons learned as a byproduct of opening a new model um, you know we are a school that really focuses on supporting kids with social and emotional needs and as a school Uh, we then have seen families who are looking for a school that can support their kids socially and emotionally end up enrolling in our school. Um, And as we're trying to understand how to best meet, meet our kids' social and emotional needs, there's work around how much of this is like our model needs to adjust to better meet our kids' needs versus how much of this is like, we actually are responding to kids who have now spent 25% of their life quarantining and, you know, with half of their face covered. And so the the actual neural pathways that you connect by associating other people's faces with the emotions and the anticipated actions are actually more difficult to decode. Like there's like very there's there's lessons that I feel like take more work to extrapolate from the experience because the experience of opening such a new school is so interwoven with the experience of doing it during the pandemic. And that creates a a challenging process for reflection. Um, But to answer your question specifically around lessons learned, um, I think one of the biggest pieces, and this one's interesting to me because I feel like we talked to other schools that like, told us this and we like took them seriously and then learned learn that we didn't dig it even as much as I wish we had, which is, um, there's so much work that goes into helping the caregivers of our children understand what about our school is the way it is on purpose versus what about our school is something that we're working on addressing. Um, and that comes up in a lot of different ways. Um, we actually, you know, we were joking earlier uh, about, um, you know, just all of the different ways in which our school is different. But one of the things we do that other, a lot of other schools do is we use the Lucy Calkins readers and writers workshop for literacy. Um, and we have a, a really beautiful literacy program and a lot of it is actually built on practices that existed before us. We, we are not completely reinventing literacy. We are taking a very different approach to the literature that our kids engage with and the role that our kids see themselves as the storytellers and not taking the, the sort of standardized test approach. But, uh, there's still a lot of research practices there, um, but because it still looks different than what most schools do, there are a lot of questions from caregivers about our approach to literacy, um, and we do actually measure our kids like reading growth. Like it's one of the areas that we actually really do believe there's pretty good quantifiable ways to gauge how well someone is developing <laughs> as a reader, uh, and we do like one-on-one like Fontes and panel type tests with kids, but it, it helps us understand where they're at. Uh, and we had caregivers all year being like, "Oh my gosh, is my kid learning to read? Is this okay? You all are so different." We're like. Yeah, they are. It's okay. And then we had like reading data; it was really good. And we were like, "See," and they were like, "Oh, okay." And then there's other places around going back to like behavior where we've got kiddos where in the classroom they're having a really hard time regulating from a sensory standpoint, and other kids are getting frustrated. And the caregivers are like, "Is this supposed to be happening, or is this something that you're working on figuring out how to better meet the, the needs of all the kids in the classroom?" Um, and, and those are great questions and helping caregivers understand the model and understand the intentionality behind it. We do town halls almost monthly with our caregivers, obviously virtually you've read our website. We have lots of information. We try and be really clear about who we are and what we do. And, uh, you know, even the like little day in the life on our website is actually like two to a minute, pretty much like every kid's day in the life at our school. Like we, we really try and communicate that, but when you live it, it's different. And so, uh, there's already been so many lessons learned about just the best way to help make sure our caregivers know and understand what it is that's unique about us and why, uh, has been, uh, you know, an ongoing journey when we're still actively learning from and still actively iterating.
2: And then I'll, I'll do my two really fast. Uh, one of my big learnings has been around um, when you take away a system that is so heavily rooted in punitive discipline and in compliance, and that summarizes about 99% of our schools across this country, it summarizes a lot of caregiving, it summarizes a lot of the way that we were parented that we were disciplined at home. Uh, and when you take away that like mandatory compliance or else. This XYZ form of punishments will then happen to you, whether it's social isolation, whether it is a punitive measure in homes, whether it's a physical punishment, Um, what you end up seeing is a lot of kiddos really uh, like seeking and grappling towards needing some sort of tools or coping mechanisms to actually process the emotions they have, to actually process the, the developmentally appropriate conflict that they're having with a peer. Uh, Like you actually need an entire like tool bag of different coping mechanisms, strategies, language, communication, practice attempts. Uh, and, And what we see as a society is we actually see our adults heavily struggle with that. We see our adults heavily struggling with mental health. We see our adults heavily struggling with relationships. Uh, We see that in just the statistics around the country. Um, And what we're now seeing is our kiddos are struggling with these things. But now we have an opportunity to intervene instead of needing to intervene when somebody's an adult. Uh, And now they're receiving more crisis interventions or they're receiving therapy to undo a lot of the things that happened in childhood. Uh, And so just the sheer volume of learning that I think our education system hasn't touched because not because our kids haven't needed it, but because we've silenced them into submission through fear tactics and through punishments. Uh, And so there's like this entire arena that I feel like in education has barely been scratched or touched with just how much learning needs to happen with our kiddos starting in pre-K, kinder, etc. Because we just we haven't done it as a nation. So that's one of my big learnings. And then the second one uh, is um, I think that most people that say they want innovation actually don't. (laughs) Um, Because theoretically, it sounds really cool. It sounds jazzy and spiffy and like uh, you want to throw your energy behind it. But innovation equals change and change to most people is scary. And so while people might verbally say they want innovation, all of their actions scream that they don't want innovation, keep the status quo exactly as is. And, and most folks don't recognize that they hold that their beliefs and their actions are in dissonance. Uh, And then when you're a school that actually is really innovative, that is all about change that is shattering every paradigm, um, you make folks really uncomfortable and you have to like help guide them through uh, just this space of, like, you're saying that these are your beliefs, but your actions are actually depicting the opposite. Like, what do you do with that dissonance? And so you end up in some, like, quiet emotional conversations, like supporting somebody as they're going, I didn't realize that I said this, but my beliefs were different.
1: It's amazing that uh, <laughs> it's, it's something that it just always will amaze me, is that what you just said is, you know, when people – they, they say they want change. <laughs> they say they want difference. They say they want innovation. And then as soon as they realize, that, oh, that's what you're doing, you'd find out whether they really want it or not. Yes, that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Cool stuff. I appreciate you guys sharing those lessons learned. You know, it's it's yeah, because it's it's cool because you started a, a new school, a different type of school, and I figure you got some lessons that are kind of like note to self. Okay, what? To, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> uh, so I appreciate you sharing that. I, you know, one of the things I gotta I gotta get you to talk about because you mentioned it just a second ago is all right. So tell us what's a day look like for a kid. Just uh, just choose a kid and give us a little idea about what a kid's gonna do, what time they get there to when they leave.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um,
1: drop off in the morning, the seven
0: thirty to eight o'clock. We have a beautiful campus. It's an abandoned amusement park that we turned into a school.
1: Just oh, wait a second, that that's cool. Here, right? Oh my you know, gosh, that's you awesome.
0: Look up San Antonio Pear Apple County Fair. Uh, it was this amazing. We're, our front office is called Hole Twelve because it's built on where Hole Twelve was in the putt putt golf course. Uh, <laughs> nice. So right. just to add add the cherry on top of all of the things that are unique about the gathering place, we are atop an abandoned amusement park. Um, so kids get dropped off seven thirty to eight o'clock, eat breakfast, uh, get get settled in. And then all classes start make 8.30 with Morning Circle, which is a really important time for community building. It's a very important time for explicit development of social emotional skills. It's a very important time to check in with kids and, and just strengthen the relationships amongst people in the classroom. Um, and then different classes have different schedules, but every class is going to have about two hours to two and a half hours a day of project work time. And projects are designed by the teacher and kids based on the kids' interests. Uh, Asha shared that we had one kindergarten class that built a water collection runoff system to create cold water for a garden. We had other kids create rolly poly habitats. We have kids that have created murals, like you you name it. And and we are diving into just the things that most interest kids and then how do we connect that to uh, you know meaningful skills and knowledge that exists in the world. Um, so that's a big chunk of the day. We do have a dedicated block of literacy every day. And like I said earlier, we use the Lucy Calkins Readers and Writers Workshop as well as Lucy Calkins' explicit uh, phonics um, program for kids. We have a dedicated numeracy block. We use an approach to numeracy that's very conceptual. So we care a lot more about kids being able to explain their thinking than a right answer. Uh, if you want a right answer, use a calculator. Also, back to the, the, the reference to history, calculators were not mainstream available to people until the early 80s, right? And so for you know, our entire development of what mathematics looks like, the intent was actually that you needed to calculate things because you didn't have a calculator. Uh, and so having algorithms that get you to correct answers quickly and efficiently was really valuable. Um, everyone now has a calculator. The, the need for human beings to have algorithms to just get to an answer quickly um is no longer important and but that doesn't mean that numeracy isn't really important it just means that we are actually able to engage in the logical conceptual foundational understanding of numeracy instead of just getting kids to memorize tricks to get to the answer because you don't need that anymore Um, so we have a numeracy block every day kids also have an art and wellness class every day so art class consists of either dance theater visual art or music wellness class either consists of cooking gardening or yoga um, and we have a full cooking kitchen. We have outdoor yoga spaces. We're one of the only properties in San Antonio inside the 410, which is sort of our urban core, uh, that uh, still has all of the original heritage oak trees because they left them up for the amusement park, which is fabulous. Any point in time, there are at least 20 kids and trees on our campus. Um, and then kids also have two 30-minute recesses a day. Uh, as as uh, our, our dearly missed friend Fred Rogers once said, you know, play is is – the work of childhood. Um, and it's important for kids to have space to have unstructured blood. And so kids have two 30-minute recesses a day. All of that, when you add it up, gets to uh, about seven hours. So uh, around 3.30, kids start getting ready to head home and dismissal gets them back to wherever they're headed. We have a beautiful partnership with the YMCA to offer really affordable after-school care for kiddos at our site. Um, and uh, and so that's a that's a, that's a very summarized but uh, accurate reflection of what a day in the life for our kids looks like.
1: Lots of doing. That's cool. Lots of doing. I like that. And just as a side note, that, to have those trees there. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So you can even probably see in the mirror in the background. I mean, this is just like, happens to be my mirror. And all you see is trees and that's what our whole campus looks like.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) And and by the way, to be in a closed amusement park. Oh, now how cool is that? I mean, that's (laughs) now I know why you ended up in San Antonio. Oh, wait a second. Look where we could be. That's that's incredible. I mean, because I've worked in places where there's kids who, yeah, they've been around trees, but not trees.
0: Right? You know? No, I know. And mean, especially here in Texas, there's a lot of schools that open up. Real estate for schools is such a nightmare. We don't have Prop 10 like California has that guarantees you a school building. In Texas, if you're a school, you got to go figure that out yourself. There's no funding for facilities. And so a lot of schools just end up in abandoned like strip malls and spaces doing the best they can, but there's no nature, you know, kids are on the parking lot for recess and that's really rough.
1: That would be rough. Yes, that would be. Well, that, that's so cool what you just described with that day. Cause lots of doing, I love, yes. I love, love that. And what a cool environment too. That, I love that. This is, this is, you're making me curiouser and curiouser or whatever that line is from <laughs> House of Wonderland. You know, it's, um, this is awesome. It, so if, I'm going to ask a couple of questions that just come up to me as I was looking at this. If someone wanted to become a teacher for you guys, what would be their first step?
0: Go to our website. Go to the menu up top. Click on the link that says careers. Take a look at some of the videos and information that we have on that page. And then down below, you'll see a list of all of the jobs that we currently have available at our school. We're a growing organization. We had 350 kids last year, uh, 500 kids this year, and we'll be 780 before we're done growing. So there is always... Uh, positions that we are hiring and filling
1: for. Excellent. Excellent. And, And so now I'm going to ask a similar question for kids. Do you just take the kids from the local area or is this something that's, you know, a parent could reach out to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about moving to San Antonio or I'd like my kid to come to you. Talk about that for a minute.
0: Yeah, we are a public charter school, which means we are free and open to any and every child. Um, the state sets what our boundaries are. So we effectively can enroll any child in Bear County. Uh, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but in general, any kid that's in the county that we're in Bear County, we're able to enroll. Uh, and all they have to do is go into our application. There's a really short, or onto our website, there's a really short application that they fill out. Um, and, uh, at different points in time, we're on a wait list. Uh, this year, Texas politics has been a mess for schools and, and you're not able to offer virtual instruction to any family that wants it. So we had some families that decided to stay home and homeschool. And, and so that's impacted enrollment for schools across the state. So right now we're, we're actively enrolling, uh, at different points in time, you hit a wait list. So if there aren't any open seats, then we have a wait list that's effectively first come first serve. And when a spot opens up, the next person on the wait list gets offered. it.
1: Very cool. Very cool. And- yeah, we're getting ready to, to finish up here. And uh, before we do that, uh, um, can you guys uh, tell tell the audience if they wanted to find out more, if they wanted to connect with you all, where do you want to send them?
2: Yeah, so we send them, we'd invite them to two different places. Uh, so the first one is we'd invite them to go check out our website. Uh, so it's thegatheringplacek12.org. Uh, K, which stands for kindergarten, and 12, like the actual numbers one, two. Uh, and so you can check us out uh, on our website. You can also check us out on Facebook. Uh, so TGP K12, you're going to see a hot pink. Circle that's that's our logo. <laughs> uh, it's going to say TGP or the Gathering Place inside, uh, and we're very active on Facebook, so you can see photos, videos from what's happening all around our campus, uh, and an absolutely great way to keep in touch as well.
1: Excellent. I will have that information in my show notes, so it'll be really easy for them to find that as well. And I got two last questions for you guys. I'd like to ask you, and it goes like this: These are questions I just like to ask my guests. And the first one is: How do you keep going when? there may be so much going on that you want to quit get overwhelmed
2: yeah i'll kick us off uh because the pandemic impact's real um it's it's the belief that children in our world like deserve a different type of education um I like We all see the inner brilliance within our kids. We see the inner brilliance within our society. And I think our schools are such a cornerstone within our community that they often predict the type of societies we're going to live in. And I just, like, I believe that the world can look very different. I believe that we can live in a world that is rooted in equity, that is rooted in collective capacity, that is rooted in in folks being and belonging at all times. Uh, And, like, my belief, like, my fuel is that that world is possible, and so even when things get really hard, even when you're, you have curveball after curveball after curveball, it is that deep belief that a different world is possible. And the way we get there is through school, and the way we get there is actually by uh, like cultivating the inner brilliance within our kids. It's already present. We're not giving our kids anything; we're just providing the environment where their own inner brilliance is able to thrive and flourish.
1: Very nice. Very nice. What, what do you think, Ryan? Going?
0: I, is ditto an appropriate answer? <laughs> uh, no. So you can have that. You can have that. It's
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> everything I is shared. I mean, definitely, our mission statement is to nurture and celebrate the inner brilliance of every child, and, and each of those words was crafted very intentionally. Um, a more practical, just direct piece too is: is kids are amazing, and and the the things that you get to experience every day when you're at an elementary school is just beautiful. Uh, and so, you know, uh, if, if If things here in the office get stuffy or or get frustrating or or get uh, sort of bogged down with bureaucracy or or whatever things you run into, go spend 30 minutes in a a first or second grade classroom helping kids uh, dive into a a new project that they're doing about how to attract more
1: pollinators into our campus and uh, your cup is refilled. I like that. That's, that's awesome, you guys. Very cool. You know, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? If you had a chance to say thank you, what'd you say?
2: Oh, I've had many, 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 many. The one that I'm going to shout out today uh, is Professor Sean McGuffey at Boston College. He was my professor in with multiple classes in sociology. Uh, he pushed each of us. To not only identify things in the world that we hope to see change, but then to actually go do the work. Um, you can, it's very easy to identify what's wrong. It's very easy to criticize. It is very easy to be a critic. And it is very easy to go, well, if I was doing it, i do it like this, 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 and this. Uh, And those are your armchair quarterbacks. It is very difficult to then go do the work. Uh, And that was his message. It wasn't enough to just identify or to become a really good critical thinker. You needed to do that and then go do something about it. Uh, And so just a, a huge appreciation to him
0: ended up in a pretty stuffy boarding school as a child uh and at a time where i was playing in a punk rock ramones cover band so i did not fit in as a way of saying that um and uh my my uh my teacher uh, mike quinn was his name Um, showed up to work his first day of my freshman year in a a beat up 1994 Cadillac that had probably 500 plastic dinosaurs glued to the hood and stood out with a top hat, uh, a giant like foam top hat and, and curled coat and was just the most bizarre, beautiful, creative person. But, but most importantly, uh, he also demonstrated that systems can change, uh, and that, just because something is the way it is doesn't mean it has to be. Uh, he was also a beacon for us, weirdo kiddos, that, that didn't feel like they fit in there. And to realize that uh, the problem was not us, but just the environment that we were in, uh, you know, changed a pretty big perspective about how we viewed ourselves. And he did that for us. So I'm very grateful for him for that.
1: That is awesome. That's cool. Nice. Very nice. I- Asha and Ryan, thanks so much for talking with me today. The Gathering Place sounds like an amazing school and what a cool place to learn and grow. Wishing the best in all you do.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, And you have a standing invitation to come visit us once this pandemic wraps up. (laughs) So come on by to San Antonio.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here.